HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, Heritage Radio Network has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Raj Vaidya and Daniel Johns. Johns did that on purpose. See if you're awake. Um, we're going to talk to Raj and Daniel about wine, La Fête du Champagne, La Tabli, La Paulet, Pressoir, and more. We're going to taste what looks like a big treat here. The guys brought in a 20-year-old coat roti, which we'll talk about in a few minutes for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Daniel Jonas is a true wine hero. He spent four decades in wine and hospitality with Daniel Balud and Drew Nikoron at New York's finest restaurants. A true Francophile, Daniel has shared and promoted his love of French wine with all of us. He has received two Chevalier Medals of Merit from the French government and is also a James Beard Award winner. At the Great Nation, we like to say we bring wine to the people. Well, Daniel has become the greatest example of that by way of his wine fates or festivals, La Palais, La Fête du Champagne, La Table, his pressoir wine experiences, and also as an importer. Jersey-born, Bombay-raised, Singapore. Uh, <laughs> all of those. Who knows, all over the place. Raj Vajra's love of Burgundy, Champagne, and Rhone wines eventually brought him together with Daniel Johns. No coincidence. Um, Raj is a highly accomplished sommelier and the director of operations for Pressoir. Before Pressoir, Raj worked at the finest wine restaurants in the country, including even New Jersey, the Ryland End. Crew, 
Gary Danko and ran the wine program for a dozen years with Daniel Balud. Raj and Daniel are gearing up for La Fête du Champagne, October 25th through the 28th in New York City. And correct me if I'm wrong, November 3rd and 4th in Houston. That's correct. Okay. So October 25th, I think, is today. So we got to get going. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Grape Nation. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm excited to have both of you. I just want to warn people that uh, because Daniel is in the thick of things, he's going to run out a little early and Raj is going to hang with me. We're talking to Raj and Dan at the Heritage Radio Network Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn at Roberta's Pizza, of which we had a little before we got the show started. So if you hear any burping or anything, that's from the bee sting. All right. Before we talk about the upcoming events, which timing wise is really why, you know, I ask you guys to come here. I want to tap into your wine expertise, specifically about Champagne, Burgundy and Rhone, too. Um, So let's start with Champagne and Burgundy. Both are classic uh, wine growing regions. And I would say have gone through a lot of change in the last few decades. Um, Climate change is now an issue. Generational change is right in front of us. Um, The grower movement in Champaign, you know, is there. So let me start with generational shifts and new wineries. In addition to new wineries and winemakers... Um, are you seeing that shift as a significant thing in both regions? Well, we're still here, everybody. Yeah. Uh, just, just want to remind you, Sam, you've done your homework. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction for both of us. That was great. Um, uh, to answer your question, I'm going to say yes. But I want to throw you off your uh, your program. Please do. I want to throw you off a little bit your you know your 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 schedule of topics to talk about because I want to start by saying how uh, how proud I am to be working with Raj for the last several years. Came on board, and also for the rest of our team, we have an amazing organization uh, with the uh, the festivals and Pressoir. Pressoir handles restaurant consulting and uh, seller consultation for collectors and. Uh, we have a lot. We have a lot going on. We have an amazing organization. I'm really proud to be uh, working with such talented people. Uh, some of them live in Boston and in France and Boone and even New Jersey. And uh, <laughs> it's really great to to be surrounded by such talent and passionate people. So well, I want to th- start out by saying I that. think after you know we're done talking. Anyone who's attended the events or anyone who listens to this podcast and understands what you're doing realizes it does take an organization and it's nice of you. And I know how important Raj is and Edward and, you know, a handful of people and then everyone else that works with you. Um, it's, it's nice for you to say that because there's a lot of moving parts here, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, thank you for saying that. Um, anything else to that point? Well, I mean, you know, we, as I said, we, we really cover the world of wine, uh, French, French wine, we're all Francophiles. And uh, that starts with me having lived in France and really developed my, my palate for French wine. 
Um, but, um, you know, we touch on all, all topics, French related, French wine related. And I have to say that what's really important to us is the culinary angle to what we do also, because, um, we love food. We love chefs who love wine and we can't really appreciate the greatness of wine without great food. So we take it very seriously. Wine is at its best. Well, it, when it's, it shows it's it shows the wine in, in its best light, and it shows situation. the food in its best light also. Right. And I started my career wanting to be a chef. I gave up on that early on. That wasn't my path. Uh, but I just want to tip my hat to all the chefs who love wine and who collaborate with us. It's really important. Yeah, um, I like that. And at your events, the level of chefs is off the charts. Raj. You know, Daniel has declared himself a Francophile. Is it fair to say early on that was you too, or are you a little more all over the place? In well, a good I think way. it's fairly safe to say. <laughs> uh, early in my career, I had, of course, broader interests, as anyone does young and interested in wine. It's such a big world to to try and, and become familiar with, let alone try and approach mastery. But I started out loving wines from Germany and Champagne very early. And so I think uh, uh, it's safe to say Francophilia was was already running rampant. And I, you know, I fell in love with Burgundy very early. Uh, Daniel had already been promoting it for, you know, more than a, a couple of decades by the time I was old enough to, to start buying and selling those Talk wines. about generations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, start, you started young and so did I. So, uh, you know, at lunch we were talking about you know, I want to talk to you about, you know, tell my people how they could find values in Burgundy and, you know, new regions. And, you know, it was clear that you were there before there was any issue about accessibility or unreasonable pricing, you know, and now we're here at a point where, I mean, one of the functions of these festivals is to be able to access and you know, taste all these yeah. things at a reasonable yeah. price. Well, yeah, it, well, it's twofold. The access to be able to taste the producers that have become harder to access, harder to taste, harder to meet with, but also to promote the region as a whole. I mean, right. Daniel, uh, I don't know when you first started including in the program of La Polée, the uh, the sort of petite wines of Burgundy uh, by way of the off-grid tasting. Yeah. But, uh, that was all, that's long been one of my favorite tastings where we assemble about 100 wines that are exactly those discovery uh, areas, you know, not the Von Romanet, but the Haute Cote, not uh, uh, Chassin Montrachet, but uh, the Chalonnet. Yeah. Uh, so really bringing those wines to yeah, well, the I, people. I, at <laughs> one point, we used to say, yeah, that Saint Aubin was like a discovery area. Now yeah. it's mainstream, it's really good. But now you're talking about even far beyond the Haute Cote and yeah. 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 to the Dijon. And I, I want to talk to you about that, but I, I want to follow up on, on two things. Is there a noticeable generational change? Like you've been in out of Burgundy, you know, walking the vines with people. Are, is that change very noticeable? Has it been gradual? Has that time come? You know, is it going to have any different impact on I think the Burgundy? There's a noticeable you know? change in Burgundy. I think it's fantastic. There's so much energy in Burgundy today. And it's come with the change of generations of That's succession a good thing, right? from the, you know, the father, mother, the, the the family to the next generation, and the next generation is uh, traveling. They're friends with people in other regions. They're interested in very, very interested in the climate change and how to deal with that in their in their vineyards, uh, whether it be organic, biodynamic, regenerative, all kinds of you know attention. 
And I find it an extremely dynamic region today. Is there still room for, besides somebody taking over generationally, have you seen new wineries? Yeah. And winemakers pop up that, you know, impress Absolutely. you. I mean, that falls under the category you just said where they're more thoughtful farming practices, making good wines. The new wineries have to find a way to do it because the land is so expensive. They cannot buy land in the main vineyard area of Burgundy, the Cote d'Or, the mainstream Appalachian, Chambon, Musigny, Von Romane, Chevrolet. But they find ways to do it. Either they have to find an investor or they go into the Haute Cote or regions that are less uh, expensive, more affordable. Um, and uh, there's, there's some fantastic, and working with different grape varieties that weren't as popular, such as Aligoté. Today, Aligoté is, is hot. So Aligoté, you would find a little outside of the Cru vineyards of Burgundy. Is it north, south? Well, it, historically, uh, Corton was planted to Aligoté. It was, so it was a, a more... Okay. Uh, lauded and appreciated variety historically fell a little bit out of uh, favor and generally Chardonnay would take a higher price. So uh, uh, those places which were planted to white were often grafted over or, or planted over to Chardonnay post phylloxera. But today, uh, I think it's twofold. First, the the interest in wines that have freshness and brightness, uh, you know, Aligote naturally has higher acidity. So stylistically expresses higher acidity in that region. Uh, but also because uh, there's a general interest in value and in general, most Aligoti, uh, outside of a handful that are extremely expensive, so tend to be is the grape. Value. Yes, Aligoti is a grape. Yeah. T talk to me, you know, about characteristics and in that climate and in those soils, it's suited well. Right, right. Well, generally, I just drink Morichet and Chevalier Morichet, but uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I guess I'm the Aligoté drinker at the table. Should I kick him out early? <laughs> just kidding. Come on. Hey, listen, remember we went to Le Soleil in 70, yes. and Lola served us that Aligoté from Emmy? Yes, I do remember. And I was like, oh, I'm not really sure, and we ended up drinking two bottles of it. it was well, so you delicious. drank a bottle and a half. I, I had a glass, <laughs> and then when I reached for a second glass, so, which was out of the second bottle, it was all gone. So, when yeah. you talk about Aligote, not every burgundy maker is making Aligote. No. There are certain people that are specializing. It is like one of them, Sylvian Pate. I can give you a bit of a primer on it. Uh, so Aligote still generally planted outside of the main village premier crew areas right. of, of the, All the Cote famous name. So you'll typically see it in the Haute Cote. You'll see it in the flatlands on the other side of the Route Nationale. So uh, the the lower rent areas, so to speak, by no means cheap anymore, but still, uh, historically, that was because they were less important places. So Aligote did fine there because you could only sell Aligote for so much. Today, it's kind of interesting because the, the combination of the naturally more acid-driven palate of an Aligote with the cooler climate in the Haute Cote at the top well. of the hill is very refreshing and appealing and compelling to modern palates, I think. And also uh, when compared with these warm vintages and, and global warming and the effects it's had on the region, the freshness of Aligote has become more compelling, I think. For yeah, I'd like to add also that it was a grape variety that was overproduced and it was considered very thin and acidic. And that's where the, the cure came from, right? They put a little creme de cassis in there to make it palatable. But in fact, there are some very old vine Aligote that when they're treated properly and reasonable yields make a very compelling wine. That's not an uncommon story in wine. There are regions where the grape is pretty good, 
the vines were great and they just made crappy commodity wines, you know, whether it was Orvieto or, you know, some of these other places. What about, so do I make you uncomfortable if I say, give me a couple of good Alagote producers? I will stay away from that if that's No, no, the case. I think that's easy. Uh, Daniel, you mentioned Ami. This is a, a small winery, A-M-I, as in France. Okay. Uh, we we got turned on to it at one of our favorite restaurants, which is in 70 Le Bon, uh, owned by the Bees family. And uh, as Daniel said, he managed, it was so delicious that it disappeared quickly. Ah, uh, they it's don't imported here in the U.S. and, and uh, Zebra Vine Selections, uh, your neighbor here right. in, in Bushwick, right uh, brings it in. And the wines are spectacular and they're a great value. I, you mentioned Sylvain Patay, who's kind of the, the to some degree, the master or the historic master of bringing it to the forefront, especially in Appalachian status. He makes a number of single vineyard wines that are Aligote that I think are spectacular and still very well priced for the quality of the wine uh, and the overall quality of Burgundy. Yeah. I would point out uh, Pierre Moray. And Moray is making a wine that I, I bought absolutely every year. I seeked it out uh, amongst the other fancy appellations that are sold. I'd get an allocation of wines, from, you know, Merceau, Batar, Montrachet, and I'd say, can I please have two cases of Aligote That's at least? That's cool. Because it aged really well. It's great that he mentions uh, Moray because they're known for their Merceau and their Batar, right. Montrachet, but then Aligote, right. so-called lesser grape variety, is fantastic. And then others like... Uh, Does like, a uh, like make Michel great Lafarge. wine? Michel Lafarge. Lafarge, Lafarge they make a great, great wine. Aligote and other great wines. I mean, a lot of people have Aligote planted yeah. and, and make yeah. it. And you mentioned Chantreuve. Chantreuve is following in the footsteps of Patay. Uh, again, this is a, a great example of an answer to the question you had about new wineries and new winemakers. Uh, this domain is relatively new and they've had to start out with what they could get their hands on. You know, they don't have massive funding. They can't buy uh, Chassagne or Merceau. And so they're making a series of single vineyard aligotes that are absolutely delicious. And really so powerful. I want to say a couple of things because I'm going to have to leave. Answer but, this question first. Okay. And see if it works. And when you're talking about aligote being good value and some of the new winemakers and, you know, it grows well there. Is something like the Macone in the mix? Is that an area where, yeah, you know, are they, they Aligotes planted all over that region? But also the Chardonnays from Macon and uh, Chalonnay are absolutely. Are you going to find values in the Macone that you may not find? Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. so Aligote, yeah. Aligote from the Macone, other wines from the Macone. Yeah, Before you answer, no, but what I want to say, go ahead. What I want to say is that what we do at our festivals and at pressoir events and everything. We actively seek out some of these lesser known regions that provide good value, young producers who are making great wine, uh, because the big names that we all love and look for as much as we can, sometimes they're out of reach uh, in the pocketbook, but also you can't find them. And we think that it's important to promote the next generation, the young producers, the lesser known Appalachians. At all of our festivals, we have sections of the program dedicated to that. Right. And we feel it's really important. You do have um, events that are accessible in price. And some of these have 20, 30, 50 different, you know, winemakers or options, which is terrific. I got to let you go in one second. But we what? do a thing. We have two minutes. You got to taste the wine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Start pouring it. So we do a thing called the wine list every week. I've done it, you know, almost 300 times. I ask my guests five questions. You don't have time for five questions. 
But Raj, I'm going to do the full thing with you and we'll compare it to your last one. Okay. So the question I'm going to ask you of the five is your favorite all-time wine. When I asked that question, you were the perfect guy because you were the perfect guy because you were in the business, you were around collectors, you were around expensive wines. So what was like the most expensive rare ball and wine you ever had? I don't give a crap about that answer anymore. The answer I care about is what is that wine today that you look back that had the most impact on you, that was a gateway, that changed the way you thought, that still resonates with you. Is there a wine or two that you can remember, either when you were a kid or maybe five months ago? There are a lot of wines, but when I was just getting into it and what really opened my eyes, my palate to it, was a Rhone wine. It was a 1976 La Moulin from Gigal. And I went into a shop and I was looking for a bottle of wine to bring to a Thanksgiving dinner. And... uh, person recommended it and said, it's a little pricey, but maybe you'd like to try it. It was uh, 76 La Moulin for $30. Okay. I said, yeah, well, I know it's a little pricey, but I'm going to go for it. And uh, you know what? It worked really well with the turkey. <laughs> when, and, when, when was this? Oh, like, you old, still remember that. Right? It, 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 Dan, Dan, it was around the... 1984. So it's like less than 10 years no, old. It, you know, Just... It's like the 82, 83. But oh. that's the point of the question. That wine yeah. you still remember. And it was, it just was yeah. a memorable. And then more recently, the wine that is, you know, it, look, Raj and I and the people we work with are like incredibly passionate, always discovering 1937 Romani Conti. Not too long ago. <laughs> the wine was good. Wow. <laughs> that was good. It was still on that note. holding up. <laughs> All right. So wait, quickly on your exit, just tell me what we're drinking. You, I always ask my guests to bring in a wine that's representative of what they're doing. You're doing the La Table Rome Festival. You brought in a 20-year-old Cote Rote. Quickly tell me about the vintage year, the producer, and Cote Rote. Well, 03 was hot everywhere, but uh, this is from a producer, Cluzel Rock. Um, wow. The only certified organic producer, although maybe there's another certified producer of organic. It's the oldest, and now there's a couple. But yeah, yeah, um, in Cote Roti, lovely family in uh, Veronay up on the northern part. And uh, this is a cuvee called the Grand Place. Grand Place is one of their larger holdings, uh, very high altitude up on the plateau. It always makes a well-structured wine. Raj and I opened this earlier just to test it, especially from a hot vintage like this. Always has some tannins, but it's drinking beautifully today. It is great. Absolutely love it. Uh, And it's a small producer. They started out when I met them, three and a half hectares. And now the son is, uh, Guillaume is running the domain. I think he's up to like 12 hectares. I've met him at your La Table. And he's going to be here in a a few short weeks. All right. So that was Daniel Jonas. We have to let Daniel go because he's a very busy guy. Raj is going to stay with us. Um, Thank you, Daniel. I hope to see you you. this weekend. Good luck with everything. Raj and I are going to talk about the remainder of the events. Um, Thank you for coming in. Um, You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We're going to take a quick break and come back with Raj Vadya. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. Uh, we just said goodbye to Daniel Jonas. Uh, Daniel's on his way to get things going for La Fête du Champagne. I'm here with Raj Vadya. Raj, before we get into the festivals, I want to ask you a few more things about wine. Um, you travel pretty extensively to Burgundy. I mean, I follow you on... Um, Instagram and I see all over the place. So you see all of the dogs I get to play with. Yeah, well, you're, and you all and the grocery stores I get to go to. You and Icy. Do you know Icy Lou? <laughs> I do know Icy. You you're the only two who post dogs in vineyard dogs <laughs> regularly. And you know, They're dogs all... <laughs> dogs that obviously, you know, move you or you connect with. Well, all dogs do... move me. And, yeah. Uh, dogs uh, don't primarily if they're other people's dogs, of course. People don't deserve dogs. Um <laughs> And you also travel, which we'll talk about a little later in the show, you know, with uh, scholarship candidates and winners, um, which is interesting. But when you travel and I see you out in the vineyards a lot, a small group of people, mm -hmm. usually the winemaker, the owner talking, when they get beyond the immediate thing they're talking about, which could be those vines, that varietal, that plot, you know, the facing or whatever. Um, I mean, what else is on their mind? I mean, is climate what change... What the hell am I doing there over and over again? What am I talking Not about? Not you, them. <laughs> what are they, you know, what are their concerns? Is climate change something they're accepting and managing or... Well, there's... Let's uh, speak a bit about, you know, what I actually do when I go to visit these wineries. Go I think ahead. that's kind of interesting. Not everybody gets is as lucky as to be able to have access to these people. I'm very, very aware of how lucky I am in that regard. And I, I'll also I'll quote a, a good friend uh, in the wine business. I sometimes uh, I always describe this to one person, but he's told me that he may or may not actually have been the one who said it <laughs> after the fact. So I'll, I'll leave it vague. But one person said to me early, early days of my career, that they learned a great deal more standing next to a barrel than they ever did from a book. And I love that, that sentiment. And I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, this can kind of uh, parlay into some of the other things we're going to talk about, but the biggest uh, takeaway I, I hope people get when they, they ask me about education and, and how to increase their knowledge in wine and, and really get into it, especially if they're professionals is you have to travel to the regions. You have to access the people who make the wine. You have to, get comfortable with them and have them get become comfortable with you. And then you have the opportunity to understand more about what they do. And that doesn't translate to, you know, uh, people ask me if I take notes when I go to these tastings, I almost never do. Uh, if there's important, if I'm going to a winery for the first time, I might write down a handful of notes just to keep my memory jogged, you know, what some of the techniques are, what their, their regimens are in terms of, farming, et cetera. But for the most part, I try and engage in a, a conversation and I'm genuinely interested in what they have to say. 
and I'm listening and paying attention, oftentimes listening intently and trying to translate it myself because my French isn't very good. Uh, and, not like Daniel's. Uh, uh, Daniel's fluent. I'm not. And for, uh, frankly, he was a bit of a handicap to me for many years because I traveled with him. I never learned because he would translate for me. Back I've, I've since French, gotten yeah. a little bit better. Uh, but um, what, I, what I take away from that is more that more important information than for example how much new oak people use or what the function of this additive might be or whether they add anything at all you know uh temperature uh, you know yield whole cluster or not uh, all, all i do ask those questions because it's interesting but it usually is interesting because it leads into a further conversation on their big picture ideas about what winemaking is. And that can be very informative in terms of the style of the wine that you're going to get, how those wines are going to evolve. Now, you know, you, you and I are both been drinking wine for a fairly good amount of time. And uh, I'm about 20 years plus into the business, which means that the youngest vintage that I've ever tasted from the time it was in barrel to today is probably vintages from the early 2000s when I first started visiting wineries. And, and, you know, we're drinking a 2003 Cote Roti. I didn't taste this in barrel. I, the first time I visited Clouseau was much later. But um, if I had tasted it in barrel and I'm tasting it today, and I've tasted it a number of times throughout my career since then, having bought and sold many cases of it in all of the restaurants, it's still so young. 20 years is not really that long a time in the Tannic. world of wine. So uh, gaining this information from the winemakers, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, teaches me about their, what are they worried about? What are they thinking about when they made this wine? What are they thinking about the wine in retrospect? Uh, how did decisions that they made at that time affect the way they made decisions in future, further uh, vintages? And what do they think about all that now? You know, um, seeing the evolution of people's ideas around the wines that they make, if they make it, is very interesting. It's not unlike, I think, asking an artist what, they, what they're shooting for when they produce something uh, in visual arts. Uh, but the beauty is it's actually comprehensible because it's pretty simple and technical. It isn't art. It's, it's craft right. to a great, a great extent. So that's what, what I'm doing. Uh, what I'm asking them can vary immensely. You know, uh, uh, I was recently in a winery in Oregon and uh, I noticed that there was music playing. And I asked the winemaker, well, is there always music playing? He said, yeah, absolutely. Is it for the vines? It, no, this was in, in the, the cellar, in okay. fact, and the wine was already in barrel. And he just said, uh, uh, you know, there's no way that the uh, vibrations don't have a, an effect on the wine. So I just always play music. Uh, that teaches me about the way that the guy approaches everything for, from, the you know, it wasn't the season for farming. They were basically waiting for harvest at the time. But uh, I, I, from his uh, inclinations about, you know, music in the cellar. There's a lot you can gain in terms right. of understanding the big picture. He's thinking so, a little differently. So that, that's a lot than... of uh, where I'm going, uh, in terms of the kind of questions that I ask in terms of understanding the holistic approach of what people are doing in the wineries. Do you get a chance year in, year out to visit the same people? Yes. Uh, and and you're, you're talking to them about what we just discussed. And I would think, year to year it changes by vintage alone and the challenges of that absolutely or and so what else evolution trying new things or that that's absolutely true especially true in the rhone and burgundy where uh, year in and year out if i'm going to the same producers the biggest reason i'm doing that is because in our work as uh, sommeliers and you know uh, at this point daniel and i are more as consultants to restaurants uh, and to private clients it's super important for me to be up to speed with 
the wines, especially the hard to reach wines. You know, uh, the the top end producers in all of the regions, it's very rare to be able to taste the wines once they're finished uh, before someone buys them. And so I have access to that. It's important for me to get a sense of them so I can advise the restaurants and the collectors on, on how to uh, purchase, uh, how to you know utilize their resources for their best gain. Um, and also, uh, it's not untrue of Champagne, but the, the fact is when I visit Champagne, I'm less tasting for the opportunity to understand what to buy as I'm looking for a, a data point on the same wines when I'm going back over and over again. Uh, so I can see how the evolution works. Why but, is that more important? It's important in Burgundy also, but it is. Uh, so but you're that, focusing that, more in I'm Champagne. I'm focusing on that in Champagne, but aside from that, Champagne is such a complex uh, universe rather than uh, a wine. Explain a little why. I, I, I will. I'll get into it. So, uh, you know, Champagne might be the most complex uh, enterprise in the wine business, in the wine world of all. And I always say a Champagne truly represents the best value anyone can imagine in terms of just the uh, the energy and the human energy that goes into it. What goes into it. Right. So yeah. with the still wine from a place like Burgundy, uh, you know, I was just there at the harvest. You get the sense that these vines were planted at a certain point, maybe 40, 50, 100 years ago. Uh, farming has to happen every year for this to continue to produce. But then given that season, uh, there's a certain amount of work in the vineyard throughout the season. There's the work of harvest, of, you know, destemming, crushing, pressing, uh, barreling down, et cetera, et cetera, uh, until the wine goes into its you know quiet stage and goes through its uh, evolution in barrel, gets bottled, you taste it a couple of times, it needs to age more in the bottle before it's drinkable. Th th that sounds pretty complex. Now think about champagne. When you have to do all of that, but in addition to that, you have to do it with very, very strict rules around the yield and the press, the quantity of how things are, are uh, uh, pressed is super important in Champagne. These you, are pre-existing regulations is, this or is, codes? This is the law, exactly. The law, right. This is the law. Of Champagne. Uh, and then you have to see that evolution of the wine prior to the bottling. So be it in barrel or in tank, what have you. The bottling usually occurs early in the year after harvest, sometimes a little bit later in the year after harvest, depending on the style. So there's additional, additionally scores of decisions to be made there. Then you have a second fermentation, which still to this day boggles my mind to understand how it's such a precise process when it's so complex. You have the addition of yeast and sugar. You have the production of uh, the CO2 in the bottle as the alcohol content goes up exactly the right amount or a very specific amount. You have the kind of closure that goes uh, on top of this wine before it's completed. Then you have the finishing of the bottle, disgorgement, uh, dosage or not, topping up the bottle, how, how to bring it to market. Champagne, in terms of the energy and work that goes into it, is so much more mind boggling than anything else in the wine world. And when you think about it in those terms, and you look at a 60 to $65 bottle of champagne, not an inexpensive bottle of wine for anybody. I mean, it's a lot of money, 60 bucks. Uh, but if you're buying a non-vintage uh, or a multi-vintage wine from a good producer, you know, usually you can find something in the $60 range. Um, that it represents tremendous value in my eyes. 
for a delicious wine that's A, pretty much ready to drink, although it'll age very well. Uh, B, the amount of energy and work that has gone into it is so immense. And you compare that, for example, with 60 bucks spent in Bordeaux, Napa Valley, Napa. Burgundy, uh, Overpriced. even the Rhone to some degree, although yeah. the Rhone is relatively inexpensive. Uh, you're not getting the same thing for 60 bucks. So it's almost like a, a steal in the wine world. And of course, as a sommelier and a, a relatively lazy one, I love champagne doubly because it pairs with everything. So stay with that because, you know, you eloquently laid out that champagne. It, you know, it's a wine and then it goes through all these, you know, processes, you know, and it's, it, it's, it's very difficult. The problem that I've seen and I've also seen a change and I want you to talk, you know, about this is it's been boxed as a celebratory wine. You know, it's, if it's lucky, it's been it, boxed as a celebratory wine. Often it's just right. like a it, celebration, it was, it, but not, not so much wine now, but eighties, yeah. nineties, it was a club wine. Mm -hmm. I mean, certain bottles were like these status things. It didn't matter you know, what you said, how it was made or the maker, it was just, you know, a cool thing. People don't think about it for food. Yeah, Champagne is broken out of that. You asked a question earlier uh, specific to Burgundy about, you know, young or new producers and, and the change of generation. Uh, although I can't speak much to the change of generation that I've seen in Champagne because most of the producers uh, that I work with where there are generational businesses have been at the helm for a little while. And uh, I would say they're their predecessing generation, their what their focus on was on producing the best thing that they could sell. So uh, now whereas, you're going to shift me into the grower movement. You, we're speaking of uh, a both new growers guy and houses. or a family yeah. guy that made it for someone else well, and is, now decided. This is to as true for a, <clears throat> a grower or for a house, uh, but. In the past, be it uh, growers who are looking, trying to produce something they could sell to houses or sell at the market, houses trying to produce something that they could sell in the market, obviously, uh, to today having a fairly easy time bringing things to market. I think that the world of champagne has been accepted, especially in the big markets of the US and, and the Far East, uh, as a serious wine. A lot of cheerleaders, you a lot know, of cheerleaders. sommeliers, I count myself amongst them. Right. And uh, I, I think that. Uh, you know, Daniel isn't here to take credit for it, but I'll give it to him anyway. Uh, him and Peter had this idea to put together a festival that really brought the whole world of Champagne together for the very first time. Uh, you, you know, the distinction you just grew, uh, drew between growers and houses is not unimportant in terms of the way the structure of the, the business is and, and the world of Champagne. But it is unimportant in terms of the quality of the wine. It's uh, it, there, there isn't a side to be picked that growers are better than houses or vice versa. Uh, that's pure nonsense. There's amazing wine being made from both structures, if you will. And they both need each other. The, uh, but there are, are people their... that do pick sides, which based on how you're presenting it to me is a little crazy because the quality... Don't don't think if it's not a grower, the quality is not I'm not inclined not to call those opposite. people who have a, a strong preference crazy. I just say that uh, they are choosing something relatively – that I believe is arbitrary in order to decide who's in and who's out. I agree. And, my, and the Lafayette du Champagne's approach has always been the opposite of that, which is here is the world of Champagne in its entirety for you to see, for you to taste and to enjoy and to experience. And today – if someone's really 
specifically anti uh, house, that's hilarious to me because all of the top growers that we uh, feature have all nearly all of them have some amount of fruit that they're purchasing or some negotiation business that they have added on simply because as growers, they weren't able to buy more enough land or much more land. So they've had to be able to buy grapes in order to produce more wine. There's a certainly, as we said, a market for it today. Right. You know, uh, uh, producers like Raphael Baresh has a negotiant line of wines and a domain line of wines. So and good, continues to grow and the wines are all great. Good segue. You know, help me with this because always when I have somebody like you, so I guess Baresh checks that box. If people are looking for interesting and quality champagnes but are looking for the value, I mean, are there certain things they're going to look for? Non-vintage, maybe. I mean, where do we go and then bring me to a producer or two? Like I said, we'll put Baresh up there. He's making great quality to value in that range. Spectacular. And he's, Spectacular. A, dear, he's a dear friend. I'm a big fan. I, I recognize that, but I loved the wines before I got to love the person even. Um, okay. Well, if you want to have an approach to finding value, number one is taste as much wine as possible because very often just because it's not expensive doesn't mean it's not good. And the inverse is definitely true. Just because it's expensive doesn't mean that it is good. Uh, don't ignore small houses because oftentimes their non-vintage wine, because of the structure of their business, is able to offer pretty interesting complexity on account of a lot of reserve wine, which brings you know roundness, complexity, texture. Uh, whereas it's harder for either a grower, uh, especially a young grower, young company. Uh, to, to produce something with that same uh, mouthfeel, that same right. sort of character of age champagne. And that, and here I'm speaking of the non-vintage, you know, uh, right. call, call it the, the main bottling or the, the cheapest bottling. Um, that's one thing to pay attention to and approach. Uh, What's certainly a good example? Certainly amongst producers, I think, uh, or growers that, uh, that work specific to certain terroir, you should learn about what you like. You know, uh, there's, champagne's a big region, when wine is being made in a very small part of Champagne, uh, it's still Champagne, but it has something that's uh, unique in terms of expression. So if you get to know certain growers who make wine in specific villages and you know that you like them, look for other growers in that village. So stylistically. Yeah. Well, but it's, don't it's, just it's hunt less about for style, style, hunt for region. That's Yeah, exactly. What about Place, varietal? I mean, you know, there's Blanc de Blanc, which people don't even know. That's just an all, you know, Chardonnay. There's... Pinot Meunier, Pinot Noir. I mean, there's, that's that there's you space have on to... my table for each of those styles of wine. Uh, when it comes to the grape variety, I think most people don't really uh, pay as much attention to what the variety is and more to names like Blanc and Blanc in terms of style. And that's OK. If they know it's all Chardonnay, that's great. But, you know, uh, that's not the most important thing. What's right. important is that that was my point. Uh, it's more what my point is more pay attention to what you like. Take note of it and seek out things that uh, that fit in the same category, because you, then you'll be able to expand your world of what you're tasting, and you'll find value for sure. Um, I know you're going to agree with this, but if you're <laughs> in a restaurant that you know is good or you like, or you have a local wine store that's more than a commodity store, beer and ice, that if you tell those people what you like. Trust They'll your, point trust you your friendly towards experts. at least some good tries, right? Yeah, trust your friendly experts. Uh, you know, make friends with uh, your friendly local sommelier and your caviste, and you'll get great advice from them for sure. 
And uh, don't be afraid to try something new. Yeah. Try, 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 try. Exactly. Um, which is a great it's thing. It's rare for me to walk into a shop and if I see a, uh, a champagne I've never seen before, it's very rare for me to walk out of the shop without that bottle because I want to taste as much as possible. I'm embarrassed when I go into a restaurant that's a decent restaurant, whether I know the wine person or not, and totally defer to them. I mean, you, them have worked so hard to put a list together, whatever the lean is, you know, whether it's German wines or Burgundy or Bordeaux, it's like you're doing some good stuff there. So what should I drink? I mean, I, I'm never, I thought I knew a lot in the early days where I'd say, oh, I want this or that. That would embarrass me now. So, you know, lean but on that. I, I think that's a healthy approach. Yeah. And I think you net better results. And again, right. this comes back to education. You know, the consumer has to educate themselves. The professionals have to be educated to, to but you have this. to be inquisitive and yeah. you want to, and you're going to have to try things and you'll stumble on some stuff. But boy, when you hit it, you know, you're drinking some good stuff. All right. Um, thanks for some uh, good intel on Champagne and Burgundy. When we talk about La Table a little, you know, we could uh, talk about a couple of Rome wines and follow up on the Cote Roti. All right. So let's let's get into the wine festivals. I think you spend a lot of time on these. I do. Getting uh, there, we do. doing as, as them. When so, I say so you, I mean we, everyone. You, you introduced them, but let me let me clarify uh, the four sort of, shall we call them, uh, platforms uh, that you mentioned. So La Fête du Champagne, which launches today, uh, is our Champagne Festival, a celebration of the entire region, founded by Peter Liam, who's the world's foremost champagne expert, and uh, a dear friend, uh, and Daniel Jonas. Um, and so next year, we'll celebrate the 10th anniversary of La Fête oh, du Champagne, wow. which is very exciting. I mean, all of them are exciting. And it's really grown from being, you know, a, a bit of a niche festival where we had to convince people that Champagne was a serious wine to some degree to something that... Well, that was... We discussed that before. It yeah. was either celebratory it's, or in the back. Now it's very exciting to most people. The festival really has legs. It has a huge audience, a very excited audience. We launched sales, uh, I forget if it was uh, August or early September, and effectively sold out the entire New York festival in a matter of two to three days, which was spectacular and very exciting. The same thing happened last year, and we were in Los Angeles for the festival. So it was a a relatively new market for us. And and that's very heartening. Because it means that the, uh, it's working. And w- one of the other things I absolutely love about Lafette is the way that it really brings the region together and brings it uh, forward in, in a unified sense. Uh, there were several, you know, leaders of houses that when they first would come to Lafette, they wouldn't shake a brewer's hand. And now they vacation with them. So things have changed over the years. And, and everyone good really gets along. Everyone has a great time. Uh, no, of course, I'm not going to tell you who. Uh, I'm an ass. La Table, which is coming up at the uh, end of November, beginning of December, is our Rhone Festival. So this is a festival that Daniel uh, uh, first launched in 2019. So it's a relatively young festival for us. It's still finding its legs to some degree, but um, has continued to grow and is a lot of fun. Uh, The producers from the Rhone Valley, I think, really appreciate a, a spotlight being shown upon them. And we're excited about them, too, because I think that, the, uh, you know, similar to Champagne in terms of uh, the quality of the wines and similar to Burgundy in terms of the structure of the, the small producers and, and tiny holdings, um, there's a lot of character. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of terroir to be spoken about in both the north and south. And I love to be able to talk about them and, and bring them to the forefront. They're incredible 
food wines. They're especially great, you know, as we get totally into the colder different months, varietally than yeah. Burgundy. You exactly. know, just the whole. You know. Yes, but but there's there's some similitude in culture, which is why yeah, it makes sense I didn't for say us culture. Yeah. I, no, but yeah, yes. absolutely, yes, the wines yes, are yes. different, uh, uh, and that's why it works. So we're excited about that. That uh, will launch, uh, as I said, uh, next month, uh, at the end of next month and the beginning so of December. For La Table, nothing's on sale yet, right? Everything's on sale. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, the, the website is yeah. up with yes, the sir. current yeah, And schedule. I'll run through all of the websites. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you can put them also yeah, on, yeah, yeah. On, on your site afterwards. Uh, La Palais was the original festival that Daniel started. Uh, next year will be, not next year, excuse me, in 2025 will be the 25th anniversary. Wow. Which is very exciting. That is uh, exciting. And obviously this is uh, the festival that kind of built the structure for all the rest of them and also built uh, a, a great deal of the following that Daniel's enjoyed over the years. Um, Burgundy is the focus there. Uh, no kidding. And uh, I think that it's, at this point, it kind of speaks for itself that many people who come to the grand tasting say to me afterwards, they're like, this is the greatest tasting of, uh, that you could possibly have in the U.S. just because you have the producers that are really hard to get to. I mean, you know, the Rhone is maybe the the proprietors are a little less known. Champagne, they're perhaps a little more visible. Uh, in Burgundy, they're a little harder to get to because they make very little wine and they're right. very high in demand. So uh, I, I know that a lot of people... Uh, really really love that tasting uh and you've been there a few times and i, I know you you're a fan as well so it's just you know a couple things answer this one quickly daniel was inspired when he was in europe by like a hospice de bone thing or something or something else it wasn't the hospice de bone it's actually called la palais so right which is la more of a gathering of is, is a uh a, every every domain has what they call their palais at the end of harvest which is really a harvest celebration in november uh in merso in the village of merso there's a larger party uh La Palais de Merceau, which is actually, it's in like three weeks, uh, the week of Thanksgiving this year. Uh, and so that was founded and, and sort of kicked off by the Lafon family uh, back in the 20s. Wow. And uh, today, you know, it's a, uh, a luncheon on a Monday where producers from the village, uh, wine growers, winemakers, merchants, all get invited. They invite their friends. They bring bottles from their cellar and everyone shares with each other. Our event for La Palais, which is, you know, modeled after that, but encompasses all of Burgundy, not just the village of right. Merceau, uh, is is intentionally uh, a place for sharing. And, you know, uh, it's a big BYO dinner. We have great chefs, which they don't always have in Merceau. Usually the food is a right. little bit more rudimentary there on, uh, at the day of the Palais. Uh, and uh, producers from all over Burgundy who bring wines from their cellars and collectors from all over the U.S. and around the world who bring wines from their cellars and everyone shares and, and has a grand old time. So that, that that's... Uh, a big part of our ethos is bringing right. together not just an educational opportunity for consumers by the, the tastings or these very special moments with the small dinners that we do specific to certain domains, but also to have this sort of opportunity that the winemakers and the collectors and, and consumers, you know, enjoy wine together. So La last thing I want to talk about is pressoir. Right. There's a little bit of confusion around what that. pressoir is. <laughs> pressoir is effectively it's everything we do, which isn't a wine festival. So we have programming that's uh, ongoing throughout the year. We do small tastings. We call them apero. We sometimes do small uh, seminar-style classes. 
uh, we do quite a few small dinners and we really love that intimate setting where we actually uh, rent out private spaces and restaurants in order to do this. So we work with a lot of the top chefs in town and we love to bring the business to them as well, uh, where we'll do wines on a theme very often where we've sourced the wines directly from the domains. Uh, and that's true for champagnes, burgundies, rhones. We've done a few Piedmont dinners. We've done stuff with uh, wines from regional France, Loire. So a bit of a wider palette there. Freshwater is also year round. Uh, year round, exactly, it, 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 exactly that, right? Uh, and we also uh, use that platform to house all of our consulting activities. So we consult for a group, a series of restaurant groups, uh, helping them uh, fine tune their business from a wine perspective, uh, and hopefully increase their business from a wine perspective. <laughs> and uh, we also do some consulting work, a little bit of, on the corporate side, and some. Uh, personal consulting to help people build their sellers and things like that. So, so that's what Pressoir is. Uh, Where does us. the, uh, there's education in that. Let's talk about cause. I mean, you do scholarships and stuff. Is that through uh, individual events or through Pressoir or a little bit? So, so that is actually a separate entity now. So uh, a little background on the Sommelier Scholarship Fund, which Daniel uh, it was Daniel's idea. And uh, when he started this uh, initiative, really, it was supported by producers in Burgundy first, only Burgundy, uh, where the wines would be donated or, or sold by domains via auction, uh, via our auction partner. And uh, proceeds from that would you know, partially go to the domain and partially go to fund a trip to Burgundy for wine professionals who have never had that opportunity. The reason for that was that Daniel was starting to worry that because as the prices of the wines, especially the top wines, began to escalate, you know, starting around 04, but really like by the the, te the the end of the aughts and the teens, many wines were well outside of the the reach of many wine professionals, even in their businesses. So they never got to taste the wines at tastings, but then the kind of restaurants they worked in, it just didn't make sense to buy and sell them. You know, a, a village Merceau used to be attainable for 30, 40 bucks wholesale. You could sell it for 80 to 90 or a hundred dollars, whatever your markup needed to be. That became obsolete. Now village wines cost a hundred plus dollars a wholesale often. And so he was really worried that the region was going to fall out of the grasp of the young wine professionals in the next generation. And really thought of this as an opportunity to once again, bring people as a learning opportunity to the barrels rather than the books to connect with the people, to Smart. understand the cuisine, understand the culture and the place. And it's really where you learn everything, I think. So this progressed. We started doing a champagne uh, uh, scholarship as well uh, with producers, again, uh, supporting it back then. And this was uh, not formal at all. It wasn't a uh, nonprofit in any formal sense. It was a nonprofit activity that Daniel did. just did. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in 2021, the end of 2021, we formalized uh, a 501c3. And so now the Sommelier Scholarship Fund is uh, its own entity and it's separate from our for profit businesses, which I described earlier. Uh, it is uh, completely staffed by. Uh, volunteers from our company. So we have almost no overhead. We, we pay Smart. for a little bit of wine storage and we have to pay someone to do the taxes and, do, and keep the books. 
But other than that, we have almost so no expenses. Deal. Yeah. No uh, we, as I'm a strong believer in efficient charities. Nothing irritates me more than, uh, you know, a charity that has to raise a million dollars to give a hundred thousand. Uh, and I understand why some With of that has to be the $100,000 CEO running it or something. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, they do good work. They deserve to get paid. For us, this isn't, Different a approach. this isn't a full-time activity for us either. Right. This is something we're able to put enough time and energy into. Uh, and more importantly, now that it's an official charity, we're able to raise funds from outside of the producers because we we already ask a lot of producers in terms of their right. time, in terms of access to wine, access for people to visit them, et cetera, et cetera. So giving uh, this opportunity to the American public to support and uh, with it's the great. tax deduction was very smart, I think, on Daniel's part. And it's been a great success. Uh, it's in, I think, anybody who loves wine and goes to restaurants uh, and, and goes to a caviste to ask for information about wine or likes somebody else's opinion totally should support this kind of an initiative because while it seems maybe from the outside uh, frivolous, potentially, uh, what people need to understand is that without having this sort of immersive experience with the producers, all wine professionals are basically brokers and maybe they're passionate brokers, but they're not connected to the place and they're right. not connected to the people who produce it. When they are, their initiatives, their purpose, their sense of purpose changes substantially. I've seen it many times. I've been working with Daniel on that initiative long before it became a, right. a the Solomon Scholarship Fund. Uh, and he involved me in the selection of the scholars from the first from the outset. And uh, I'm very passionate about it. I really believe it's a wonderful opportunity for people to learn. And so uh, those people who are listening to your show, if you're in the wine business, you should absolutely apply. Sommelier so where? I mean, we're going to go through all the uh, mm -hmm. websites and everything. There's a lot. But for this specifically, because we're talking about it, if somebody says, why not? Where do I reach out? Where do they? Sommelier Scholarship Fund is easily Googleable. It's sommelierscholarship.org. Okay, so it has its own yeah. sommelier scholarship. The, the best place to go to find everything, just because La Palais is the easiest name to remember, Okay, go to lapalais.com, and everything and else we do to... is linked in, in the top banner. That's probably the easiest uh, way to find us. All right, before we wrap up, um, you talked about all the festivals, and I think everyone has a pretty good feel. What I want to talk about for a couple of minutes is sort of the mechanics. And there's a similarity. Like, I'll set it up for you. All the events have a grand tasting. All the events have some kind of, you know, educational masterclass. Uh, there's some very reasonable lunches and dinners and some expensive ones. Tell me about the common things, you know, that when you go on the website, we didn't do justice. I mean, we talked about the tasting and the gala dinner. There's a lot going on during the week. Just check off everything for me. Sure. So uh, why don't we talk about Tablet? Because uh, by the time this goes to air, right. uh, I already have a few but people. But Tablet's formula follows in a It's way. very similar. We're Go trying ahead. something a little bit different this year because, after all, the region isn't the same and the, the feeling doesn't have to be the same. But uh, we're going to do a series of small dinners and lunches uh, during La Tablet. We're doing one dinner which is not uh, a collaboration with a producer because sadly said producer is passed, but uh, we acquired a, a selection of wines uh, from Manny Burke of the Rare Wine Company's uh, collection. And he's going to attend and he's very passionate about these wines uh, from Noel Verse from Cornas. So that'll be kind of, it's a very fancy 
uh, occasion and uh, not an inexpensive dinner, but uh, these wines are very rare now and the and sourcing super is super unique and rare. Super yeah. special, yeah. And it's we kind intend of if you know, you know type thing. It, it is, but at the same time, thanks to Manny's largesse to a great extent because he's uh, working with us to keep the price very fair, uh, although not inexpensive. Uh, you know, if you take two any of the two older vintages that are in the tasting, you couldn't buy a single bottle of that wine for the price of the dinner and you'll get to taste, you know, 14 vintages uh, cool. and listen to Manny talk about them, which is maybe worth so the price of the entry. thematically, we, lunches, yeah. you have the dinner. Well, well, I'd like to talk about a couple of other ones during the tablet because I think they, they're illustrative. So we'll usually have something quite special like that, maybe one or two, maybe just one. We'll usually have something that uh, brings everyone to the table in, in a bit more old-fashioned sense. So during the uh, the tablet, that's the machon. The machon is sort of a, a lunchtime celebration, very rustic food. Uh, Daniel Boulud cooks uh, for this event, and he loves cooking for it because it really takes him back home to Lyon. Uh, uh, you know, a, a large pot of stew is is sort of the centerpiece. More rustic. We have a handful fancy. of producers, uh, uh, up and comers, not necessarily the fanciest appellations, but really good, honest wines uh, that are not very expensive. And uh, it isn't a formal wine dinner where you get you know three wines per course. The producers will be there, the bottles will be on the table, people get to pitch in and have a glass. It's a really like fun time, not expensive, and and. Approaching wine in truly a Lyonnaise fashion, which is important because that, that's sort of the seat of the, the region in the north. But I think uh, you see uh, how the the spirit of the cuisine of Lyon really connects with the Rhone Valley. Uh, so that, that gives you a couple of examples. We often do, uh, you know, a tasting of off-grid for the Palais, uh, which I think is, uh, it, it makes sense for the Palais, obviously not for the Tablet, for example, but uh, where we talked about, you know, featuring or highlighting the sort of less known right. appellations and, and producers. Uh, and then we usually have a tasting at the current vintage. So the, that's what you described as the grand tasting, uh, which is the, the name we use for the Palais and for Lafette. But uh, the, the concept is the same. Producers bring three to four wines of the cur their current offerings, and the producer will be behind the table along with an excellent sommelier. The function of that is that the sommelier does the pouring while the producer gets to do the talking. Right. And done uh, well that way. And so our clients get to really interact with the producer, get to have a bit more intimate knowledge and get to know them a little bit uh, and, and see their current range. And uh, we have some amazing uh, culinary aspects there too, always in the tastings. We uh, bring in local restaurants. We have a handful of partners that uh, bring, you know, oysters from the West Coast or caviar for the champagne event. It's pretty impressive. It's a lot of fun. It's and, it's well curated. And we every one to, of them. And we work very hard to get new restaurants, not, not necessarily new businesses, but, you know. Uh, I was going to say, it's not the same. It's not static. You, exactly. you know, fancy guy. It's uh, Daniel Balud's always there, but we you'll try and see make sure like a it, yeah. Daniel Eddy or a James O'Brien who've been on the scene for years doing good stuff. In, indeed. Hopefully uh, we'll see who listens to this and see how many angry texts I get from different chefs. But this year, if you Those come are to just the examples. We're if not you come to the tablet tasting this Raj year. alone. You, you have a problem, you come to me. All well, right? If you come to the tablet tasting this year, you might get to taste dueling terrines from two different chefs named Daniel. I'm just saying. I like that. That's a good one. Um, 
And then we have a celebratory dinner or lunch. So this year, the table will be a lunch. We thought it would be more fun to do the grand tasting in the evening and have it be a bit more of a fun atmosphere. So it'll so actually flip be in Brooklyn. We'll flip flop them, exactly. Cool. They won't be on the same day. The tasting will be in the evening on the, fr on the Friday night. And then Saturday, we're going to have our gala uh, during the daytime. We're actually going to do it in Manhattan. So you can imagine a bunch of these country bumpkins from the Rhone. They're going to get a heck of a view out of it. We're talking about the Rhone. We've talked about... Uh, the next generation. We've talked about organic farming. We've talked about, you know, Daniel's history in wine. Can we talk about this wine? Yeah. Because this wine encapsulates So we're going to flip-flop things. I do a thing called the wine list where I ask you five questions. We're going to do that. And I also do, I end the show with the wine sip, the weekly right. wine sip, where we taste, evaluate, and discuss a wine, which is what we're going to do here. Because I said, bring something that is... Uh, you know, or reference to what you're doing. And this is a Rhone wine. And like you said, as we're talking, people still may hear this, go to the website for Champagne, La Fête du Chien, and there may be one or two things they could still get into. I could tell you right now, it's tight. <laughs> um, but La Table is coming up. So this wine, this is a great example. So every week we taste a different wine on air. Tell me specifically about this wine the producer, vintage year, why you brought it. So as Daniel said earlier in the show, he uh, started importing Cluzel right when they began. And so I've always known the wines because Daniel imported them. And uh, the back label on this magnum says Daniel John's selection from back when he was uh, importing the wines. Uh, er, uh, this is early 2000s. Um, it was for a long time the only practicing and certified organic producer in Cote Roti. Cote Roti is not known for its history of organic farming, quite the opposite. Uh, the reason for that, the primary reason for that is that it's so hard to work. It's very, very steep. And so uh, weeding is extremely difficult. Animals are not really easy to use or control. And so most people just use herbicides in order to, uh, you know, uh, take keep, care of things. To take care of things. Uh, this was not the approach from the Cluzel. Uh, the Cluzel have had a closer connection to uh, what they're putting into the land because they are truly farmers and they, they definitely consume a lot of their wine and they just didn't like the feel of it. So they, they, they never used chemicals, which is kind of great because their land is extremely well maintained. Um, talking about second, the next generation. So not this past spring, but the one prior, Daniel and I attended the... Uh, the party that the Cluzel threw for the retirement of uh, uh, Guillaume and Brigitte, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 the previous generation, uh, Guillaume is the son, sorry, and he was officially taking over. Now, mind you, Guillaume's been making the wine for quite some time. And the Tuesday after this party, which was on a Saturday, we went back to the winery to taste and uh, Brigitte, uh, who had just retired, was sitting uh at a table and doing, uh, you know, tea rafting <laughs> for their own nursery. <laughs> so uh, it was just an occasion for a party, but it kind of gives you the sense of uh, how important it is for a family business like that to continue with the next generation. Um, 03 is a, uh, it's a tricky vintage for me in the Northern Rome because there's some really lovely wines and there's some really inky and heavy wines. It really is a question of when they were picked and how the wines were made. I never disliked Cluzel's, uh, uh, O3s, but I also didn't love the vintage in general at the time. Uh, I've come to realize that actually the best wines just needed time, as you can see from this bottle. This is a Magnum, so it still has some tannic character, but we've been now tasting it over the course of about an hour. 
and it's slowly opened up. The tannins are much softer than they were before. I double decanted it around 11 a.m. and now it's 1.30. It's starting to drink pretty well. Yeah. I'll be finishing it with our team after our first Daniel event. Said, for uh, so hopefully it'll be really when wider. I took another uh, taste. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll make sure of that. So 100% Syrah in this case, of course. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I just think that these wines show tremendous elegance while still being a tremendous value. Uh, Cote Roti is a pretty fancy appellation, but you know, compared with Burgundy, it's uh, still for great wine. You're not paying up that much. Clusel, for whatever reason, possibly because they're not a tiny producer, uh, but also I think just because they weren't on everybody's radar, have never really like reached the soaring heights of the Gigal wines or even Jamé, for example, in the secondary market. So you can still buy a current vintage of that, these wines. That's a good thing uh, for a very reasonable price, I think. And the wines are truly exceptional. It's one of my favorite. So that's the 2003 Cluzel Coat Roti. What's the designation? Le Grand Place. It's their, their, one of their biggest parcels, which is on the top of the crown of the hill in Coat Roti. So Berenice. I'm not going to get into the 03, but if I was looking at current vintages, <clears throat> better places would have Cluzel Roque. Yes, yes. Uh, of course, not in huge quantities, so they tend to come, uh, come and what go. What would a 750? I mean, what range are we looking at? For Rita? Grand Plus, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think it's probably about 100 bucks. Okay. Maybe a little bit more. Okay. Um, uh, but a great value, you know, for that. Um, and that's the Northern Rhone. That's correct. Um, and I didn't mention this, but I post all the info we talked about great. on our uh, social media websites. Um so it sort of has all the aspects of a coat roadie, but a warm vintage, tannic, anything they're doing that differentiates them from other? I, I think because of the organic farming. Uh, Maybe more they lively. Have, they, or Well, they have the benefit probably of having the wine be a little less heavy despite the vintage. The problem with 03 was not just that it was hot, but that was so hot that the vegetal processes uh of the the vine shut down eventually so they stopped producing sugar and just went dormant because they were overheated when you have organic farming at this level and cover crops uh you also have better water retention even despite you know the high right. elevation and i think that they probably although they it's hard to believe that they didn't have some hydric stress the vines probably managed it better because of the organic farming so i don't find um, the thing I, I dislike in some O3s, which is a, a inky sort of syrupy character. And I also don't find the other extreme that comes with that, uh, which is that, you know, those characters come from the alcohol or, or the potential alcohol for, uh, from the heat of the, uh, the vintage. But alongside that, oftentimes O3s have this like vegetal green note from like, both overripeness like and sugar, but underripeness and or, or it, stem. Yeah, it's a phenolic issue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's interesting in the right way, but you're saying it's too much over the top. Sometimes it can be. Here, I don't feel like that's a problem at all. They also, also use whole cluster. Cluzel uh, uh, is always in a whole cluster house. And so that provides, I think, a little bit additional freshness to the palate. Are, you know, you said earlier that producers are not farming that responsibly because of the region, you know, using Cotrity historically. Yeah. Is that changing or yes, it's still much so. stuck? No, no, it's very much little changing. by little. So and that's, the, that's promising. I think a big part of that is a generational change, but also yeah. I think for a quality level of wine at a certain point, uh, you know, champagne still, it's a, it's a amazingly small amount of the vineyard area in champagne 
is organic. I know. But it's growing and growing exponentially. And I think the same thing is definitely true in the Rhone, uh, especially in Cote Roti. We're seeing, you know, uh, more people farming organically, if, even if they haven't been certified. I'd pull out and right. uh, focus on... Practice and certification or two different things that, I mean, well you, you could be practicing and doing a fine what, job. what's important is what people are doing that's more of what i'm saying all right um before we leave i want to just run the uh wine list by you don't dwell on these answers five questions you you've answered them before i feel like i've done this several times so you may have done it a few times <laughs> all right first question always is what are you drinking now so what's in the fridge what are you experimenting with does it tie into the festivals does it tie into seasonality could be beer uh i don't drink as much beer anymore as i've gotten older that's become harder uh, so what are you drinking now? So right now I'm drinking a lot of champagne, but I, that's always true. That's not really a seasonally that's specific That's a thing answer. now. You enjoy it and you'll always drink I just, it. I always have been a big champagne drinker uh, uh, by, by volume. <laughs> champagne, I drink much more than I do any other wine, I'd say. Um, I've been really kind of excited by uh, what this change of season, although it's warmer today and it will be for the next few days, uh, the beginning of autumn, I quite like. Uh, dipping back into you know orange wines, wines with a bit of skin contact, so that salinity and texture, uh, and and pretty wide ranging in my approach there in terms of regionality. Uh, I am not quite I mean, at you the can point go where Italy, France, Eastern Europe. I mean, they're all uh, making... yeah, a, a lot of French, a lot more yeah. French than others, but uh, but certainly uh, even Germany. Uh, right. But uh, I haven't quite gotten to the Rhone part of the year yet. It's really when Too I feel warm. like after daylight savings is when I when I'm like I, it's move. Syrah time. Uh, but but uh, for sure I've been drinking a couple of different San Joseph uh, meals of late. And you know whenever I get the chance to drink Burgundy, I do. But right. more often professionally than uh, than personally. These those days. those are all good ones. Um, you know I have a cellar, so whenever I go out to dinner with friends. I won't let them bring wine because why would I drink their crap wine? <laughs> so I said, don't bring anything. I'll bring it. So I would always bring a white and a red, a couple of reds. Yeah. I do not go out to eat without bringing a bottle of champagne instead of the white, sometimes a white. People go, why'd you bring that? And, and you know what we discussed it's yeah, not just it's, celebratory it's not no, just no. A, it's, it's a real it's wine because you're a lazy sommelier you, you and know a, it goes a well lot with of restaurants they're opening with seafood salad yeah, yeah. Way, you know it, it goes well with that stuff except maybe with the exception of a steakhouse plenty of stuff for it to go well steakhouse. next week in houston we're going to do a salon and delamont dinner at papa's steakhouse in houston texas famous which is what's his I, name I did, still down there? Jack, no. uh, Steve McDonald. Steve. Is, uh, okay. the, the All right. Let's move to the next question. Kind of falls into what we're talking about. Goofiest question on the list. Maybe it's the same as last time. Maybe not favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you think is a good one. What you like right now. I'm really excited by coat roti and, you know, uh, salami pizza, what we just had. Okay. Uh, about so an hour we had, ago. wherever bird is, we had a bee sting, which is basically a margarita with a, uh, wide cut supersod, which is the spicy supersod, spicy supersod and, a, and honey and honey, but hot honey. Yeah, that's right. So you have the heat of the honey, the spice, and that wine goes perfectly. So this O3 coat routine was really good with it. The vegetal touch. We uh, kind of nailed it at lunch, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. All right. All right. So, you, you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, and, and tell me your comfort level here. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar? 
Now, let me set it up and then I'll guide you through this. What places are doing it well? What places are you comfortable with? What places kind of get it, have the vibe, the selection? And everyone may vary. This place may be good for just French wines, whatever. Answer that if you want. If you feel to answer that, that you'll be exclusive. And like you said, you'll get some calls. Don't answer it. Are you comfortable? And these are not your favorites. These are not in rank. <laughs> G- give me places that you walk I'm going to give in. you four restaurants. Two Go. of them in New York and two of them in Burgundy. How Perfect. About uh, so let's start in New York. Uh, my hands down favorite restaurant is the Four Horsemen. Uh, it's very, uh, I know everybody knows about it. Not it's an uncommon a, answer on this show. Not an uncommon answer. Well but, deserved. But, but I think it's important. I think two things are important. One is that there's very rarely a restaurant uh, in New York City that can honestly say that they have what I describe as a real seller, i.e. not a collection of wine they just bought uh, six right. months ago or two years ago, but that I, I was lucky to be able to produce uh, a great program out of a similar seller at restaurant Danielle. That's certainly true of the four horsemen. The other thing that's important pointing out about that restaurant is that it isn't a wine bar, uh, regardless of what, uh, you know, it, it began as, or what it intended to be. It is a restaurant. The chef Nick is unbelievably unbelievable. talented chef and one of my favorite in the world. I always have an amazing meal there. I can't speak more highly of it. Um, a less called out restaurant, I think, which I I just had lunch there over the weekend and I'm, I'm a really big fan. It's very much a neighborhood feel, the restaurant. It has wonderful acoustics. You can have a nice, loud neighborhood restaurant feel while still being able to hear each other. It becomes more and more important uh, as I get older and older. Has a fantastic wine list, not a giant wine list, uh, but well a small collection, out. super well thought out and has something for, you know, the very wealthy collectors I sometimes dine with. And for me and my girlfriend, when we're going for a Sunday lunch, uh, great champagne list. And that is Anton's in the West Village. Uh, uh, Natalie. Natalie is amazing. Uh, uh, I don't think she's been spending too much time at the restaurant of late because uh, Natalie and Nick just had their first child. Right. Uh, who I get to see in the neighborhood. I, we live in the same neighborhood, so I see them around from time to time. But uh, nothing is lost by her, her temporary absence in that their staff is truly very personable and very warm. The food is delicious, and it's a restaurant that feels good. Every time I leave there, I feel great. So those are my two I'm New York a fan. answers. I'm a fan of Nick's food, Natalie. I met her at Dan Kluger's place. She was at Lauren's yeah, yeah. place for a few I years. I met her, I think, at Marta, which was right before yeah, she went to- Yeah, she's a sweetheart. And so um, uh, one, I'll, I'll drop it down to one. How about one restaurant one in bone? France that's uh, worth mentioning because it's the one place I always go to, uh, at least for lunch, is La Dilettante. If you have the opportunity to visit Bone, you have to go to La Dilettante. Uh, the, sh- the cuisine has a bit of a Japanese bent to it. It's always a very small menu, but very well situated. The products are absolutely spectacular. They make a karaage, you know, a fried chicken. And I'm notorious for looking for Asian food when I'm in France. Uh, I love that. They usually only serve it at night. One time I made, uh, I changed my whole travel plan so I could be there at night to have the fried chicken. (laughs) And they didn't have it on the menu. I spoke to Lolo, the the proprietor, and I was like, you don't have the fried chicken. He said, yeah, well, my chicken guy's on vacation and nobody ah. else's chicken is good enough. So, uh, it just gives Very you a sense discerning. of their approach to sourcing. But you can always drink super well from super natty, like hard to find bottles uh, that, that are, you know, very sought after in New York and cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars for 60 to 80 euro there. Wow. Or you can drink, you know, uh, Dovisat or Meunier for also for Reasonable. super fair prices. Delicious food, wonderful feeling, and maybe the best salad in all of France. 
Does Bone have a bunch of good restaurants or? Oh yeah, it's there's a, a good lot restaurant of restaurants town. Absolutely, it's a great restaurant town. I forgot. I don't know where it was. Like Champagne or Bordeaux is not a great restaurant town, or it's gotten well, better. There's good restaurants in Reims. Uh, the rest of the Champagne region it can be a little bit spotty. Okay. So that's uh, once uh, you get out of yeah. Peter Liam likes to joke that uh, the only good restaurant in Epernay is called Hira. Hira is a North Indian restaurant where we often go for chana masala and tikka. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm very asking good. that because I think I heard Peter tell me that years ago <laughs> and it's stuck. You know, he kind of rolled his eyes when, you know, we got to this. Um, but it's good to hear that. All right. We asked Daniel this before he left. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Favorite all-time wine, not the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank. But, you know, you've been at this a long time. You've been exposed to a lot of good things. Look back, like I said, it could have been six months ago or when you were 16. What was that wine <laughs> that really made that? Or wine or two, if it... That's becoming you know, increasingly hard to answer because, of course, I'm very lucky. I get to taste a lot of wine and I also get to taste a lot of great wine. Uh, I'll pull out two different wines for two very different reasons. One of them is that kind of super fancy bottle because That's I fine. had it recently. Uh, but it is fancy, but it's also peculiar in that it's not a vintage anybody really knows about. I was lucky to serve wine uh, recently at a dinner where a bunch of very well-known Burgundian winemakers uh, were in attendance uh, from the absolute creme de la creme top domains. And uh, a bottle of 1940 Comte de Vogue Musigny was open. And I've had a little experience tasting a couple of different 1940s, but like two. Uh, at the at the table, the claim was that none of them have ever tasted a 1940, although after the fact, I, I questioned that of a couple of them. I think they just either forgot or, or played along. Um, but it's not a vintage that people know very much about. Uh, number one is it was probably made uh, mostly uh, by by ladies who were still at the domain. This is, you know, the height of the war and um, That's interesting. a difficult time to say the very, very least. Uh, in Burgundy and in France in general. And in addition to that, it was a vintage that really isn't written about, probably also because of the time that it Not occurred, a but also vintage. because there wasn't really a market uh, and people weren't buying these wines very robustly uh, after them. So the bottle was in unbelievable condition and it really boggled my mind. Uh, I think about it, every, I had it like two and a half weeks ago. I've woken up every morning thinking about that bottle. Wow. Um, so, so there is a place for old wine when it's in great condition. It can be really moving and it can really make an impression on me. Um, a wine that uh, is sort of a, a, the other side of that, a, a totally different approach um, that I really love. Uh, I, I've been going back and forth with a, a buddy of mine because uh, he's a friend who's in the wine business. He's been on the show before, but he, he tends to uh, get very excited about wines that he really likes. And then if he has something that he doesn't like, he's quick to text me, especially if he knows I'm a fan and, and kind of like give me a hard time about it. <laughs> so sometimes producers who make great wine, not every bottle of theirs is fantastic, right? It happens. Uh, this year in the summer, I uh, took my girlfriend to, we were in Beaujolais and we went to visit Jean-Louis Dutre. And it's funny, one of the wines he poured for us uh, amongst the 21s was a, uh, a wine that had, uh, the flaw of mousiness, you know, it's a, it's a bacterial thing. And I, 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 in a very friendly way, he's a, he's a good friend and a sweet, sweet guy. I brought it up in conversation. I was like, maybe this has a little bit of what they call the gutsuri, the taste of mouse. And he said, yeah, probably. I can't really taste that. I don't really have like a attunement to it. Uh, so it's possible. And I was like, okay, well, that, that kind of informs me as to why sometimes some bottles are mousy from, from the domain. 
this friend of mine called me up and told me how much he hated the 2021 Domaine de la Conque uh, from uh, Dutreuil. Uh, but that's my wine that I'm talking about today because 21 is an interesting vintage. It's kind of like a little bit of a thinner uh, vintage in terms of uh, density in Beaujolais. Uh, after a series of very dense vintages, 17, 18, 19, and 20, where 19 right. has, has got tremendous balance, but the other three can be a little awkward. They can show more elbows than, than you know, uh, one necessarily likes, and also a little more alcohol, which Gamay is really delightful when it's fresh. It's a little less delightful when it is gets Is it heavy. one of the crews or a village? Uh, th th this was the 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 old vine cuvee from, right. from the, the Grand Cours. Yeah, right. uh, from the Clos. Uh, and uh, so my friend was saying that he had had an experience of it as being mousy, which this wasn't the wine that was tasted mousy when I tasted it. And so I, I have a few bottles of that at home. I've had great experiences with it prior, so I decided I would try it again. And uh, I opened it. It was one of those rare occasions. I was entirely by myself. I'd taken the the night off of uh, work, you know, obligations. I didn't still have to drink have a wine dinner alone and have uh, no my, plan. my girlfriend was busy being healthy. <laughs> she went for a run instead and ate a salad. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to drink a bottle of Beaujolais by myself. This bottle of wine uh, was gone in like 40 minutes. It was so glowing. By myself. It was so delicious. There was no evidence of mouse. I'm not doubting my my friend who tasted that but uh it just like imprinted in my head that you know people can get hung up on specific things but if they can just taste outside of that and just give it some time to evolve maybe maybe it would have blown off i don't know uh what was really imprinting itself uh in my mind the entire time i was drinking it was how it ran the gamut of while having this delicacy and this lightness it still had this juiciness, this juicy fruit that sat on top of that that very light uh, palate. Beaujolais and Gamay should have a little of that juiciness. I, I absolutely love it. I didn't mention that when I was saying what I'm drinking now because uh, I haven't been drinking as much Gamay well, as like I probably should. Well, like I said, should. I'm, I'm going to post that. And, you know, people but get... I'm, I'm a huge fan, yeah. They get uh, curious and they're like, that sounds like a good story. I have to try it. All right, last question. You should be able to do this. You worked in restaurants. You consult, you serve a lot of wine. Recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks. Uh, I recommend a red, recommend a white. You can go category. If you think Muscadet is just a great, you, you know, you can go specific makers, you know, Sicily. Give me your red pick. Give me your white pick. Um, I always say my kids are in their late twenties, early thirties. They're not. I've, I've been listening to your show long enough that your kids have just They're probably fifty now. Like when this first, when this question first started, it was illegal. I'm pretty sure I, I we know. were contributing to the delinquency it's funny of minors. You, say, you know, I'm so redundant, but I, I need that setup. It's like you can't Sam, this, show up with a fifty dollar wine if you're going. I feel to, like I feel like they've graduated to the thirty five dollar level personally. Well, you but I'll still give you something you for fifteen. Give me a red and a white reco that are great value to quality okay uh i would like to try and not be repetitive but i don't remember what i've answered it's okay uh you've heard me say muscadet for sure uh i think that taking it back to chablis it's a a, a region that i forget can be so good sometimes uh and, and you know at the village level uh from a good producer who is farming well you can find some tremendous value there 
I think of the wine, the the terroir du Chablis from uh, Beru. I think probably is a little higher than that. Again, I'm trying Spell to Beru. B E R U. I'm trying to graduate Beru. your kids to the okay. thirty-five dollar level here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Brocard comes to mind. B R O C A R D. Right. Uh, and there's two labels there: no the Domaine Brocard or the Julien Brocard. Those kind of tend to fit in that price range. Tremendous values. Very saline, delicious, salty wines. Uh, it's Chablis, not Chardonnay. Uh, even though it is made from Chardonnay, it's really a wine of place. And I think it offers that that complexity for value. So the difference between, if someone, if someone asks you, what's the difference between Chardonnay and Chablis? It's place. It's Chardonnay made in Chablis. Chardonnay is an ingredient and everything in Chablis. And Chablis that affects if that If you think wine. about Chablis as the holistic thing, Chardonnay is one piece of it, but not the entirety. Yeah. All right. So that's... So I give you. Uh, I back you up on that. Is red harder for you, or red is well to, to get in the price range? Uh, again, I'm going to try and keep myself from being repetitive. I feel certain I've mentioned the Loire, uh, and if I haven't, I should. It doesn't have. matter. That's what you believe. <laughs> I'm going to go with Saint Joseph. Uh, I'm coming back into Saint Joseph drinking season soon. I don't remember when the time changes, but as soon as it's dark by five o'clock, I'm going to be ready to drink some Syrah. So I think that uh, if you look at the wines from Julien Session, the uh, C E C I two L I L L O N, uh, exactly. Uh, He'll be at La Table. He will be at La Table. Okay. Uh, he's a tremendous guy, and he makes really delicious wine that's in tremendous value. Uh, again, you know, maybe pushing the high end of 25 going to 30. Does he make more than Saint Joseph? Yes, he does. He makes Cornas. He makes Prose Hermitage. Uh, he's a dynamic young guy. Uh, him and his lovely wife, Nancy, are making really, really delicious wines in the Northern Rhone, and I think they're great values. All right, so we wound up with Chablis, and we wound up with... Um, Saint-Joseph. Saint-Joseph, two terrific choices. As I mentioned, I will post as much specifics as you've given me. Um, let me do a quick wrap up and then we're going to have to spend a few minutes on where everyone can get more information or access. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grape nation.com. That's Sam at the grape nation.com. Subscribe to the grape nation podcast on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google podcasts, which I heard is going away <laughs> or wherever you get your pods, leave a review. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate that. You you can follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and on X at benruby. You could always reach us on both through the hashtag the Grape Nation. We are on Facebook, where I'm finding myself spending very little time on. I hate to say it at the Grape Nation. <laughs> Facebook still uh, exists, <laughs> right? Um, we'll post uh, Raj's wine list and uh, Daniel's wine that he mentioned, and the weekly wine sip, which was the 20 year old Coat Rody on our social media sites. All right, so Raj, how do we approach this? The question is to find out more information on everything. If there's somebody who says, screw it, I don't care if it's this weekend, where do I find out more about Le Fete de Champagne? I love Rome wines, that's coming up, where do I find out? The Paul A thing I went to once five years ago, these pressoir dinners, Lay it out for me. Well, the beauty of uh, the modern era is that you don't actually have to know anything. All you have to do is be able to Google, and you don't even have to spell it correctly usually to find us. That having been said, <laughs> if you started any one of our uh, web landing pages, uh, uh, pressoir.wine, P-R-E-S-S-O-I-R dot W-I-N-E is a good place to start because that gives you our ongoing programming, but also links you to our festivals and the upcoming 
So singularly, that site will get you each each of our websites gives gets you gives everywhere. Access to okay, exactly. But start with Pressoir. Yeah, we can start with that one. Because the, the reason I would say start with Pressoir is there's stuff going on all the time. Exactly. You may get there and there's a cool theme dinner two weeks from you know the yeah, day and, you did and, it. And there are two. We're Tabli yeah. and yeah. all once in a year. In fact, between between La Fête du Champagne here in New York and after La Fête du Champagne in Houston next week, we'll be uh, having two very cool dinners here in New York City. Uh, uh, which you'll find on the Pressoir. Uh, is Houston website. a new market for any of these? Absolutely. It's our first time doing Lafette there. And, and it's very exciting, really. It's, it's uh, something we, we kind of put together last minute in some ways. But Did uh, somebody like kind of well, pull you? What? To some degree, yes. Uh, we, we like, were why are you doing it here? We were originally going to do a small pop-up uh, after Lafette in a different market, but uh, it was in collaboration with a partner, uh, a resort, and it didn't work out. No, you know, kind of came apart. Uh, even though we've done a great deal of work to put together the roster and put the wines in play because, you know, wine takes a while to get here. So as it started unraveling, I thought to myself, well, maybe we should do it somewhere else. And Daniel and I and the rest of the team started discussing options. I walked out of the office, uh, you know, kind of irritated after one of the call, the calls that made it very clear that this was not going to move forward. And I was walking down the street uh, past one of my other favorite restaurants, Frenchette when the chef Aaron Bloodhorn, the ex-chef of Cafe Blood here in New York, who now has Bloodhorn and Navy Blue in Houston, Texas, walked out of the, the restaurant. And him and his operations director, Sharif, who I also worked with, good friends, former colleagues, we just had a grand old time, uh, you know, shooting it and, and chatting. And then it just struck me a little bit after that. I was like, what if we go to Houston? We've been trying to get, you know, Daniel and the team did uh, an event in Houston in the past uh, uh, around La Palais, along with one of our partners, American Express. And uh, it was a big success. It's been some years. We wanted to try a new market and we said, why not? You know, uh, we're, so we're going for it. We still have tickets available to Houston. So if you're in that part of the country, you should come visit. Uh, we're sold out here in New York with the exception of one single ticket for our Bollinger of Vienne Francais dinner this Friday. Which is one of the theme. We're, we're pretty much completely sold okay. out. So if you're in Houston, look for that. La Table coming up in November. Yep. La Paule is next year, earlier in the year. Yes. Right. Uh, we'll be in uh, the end of February and the beginning of March, uh, and that'll be in Los Angeles. All right. And if people want to follow you and they like dogs... <laughs> and guys walking around vineyards, where can they find Raj? Hans? My social media is pretty much uh, uh, limited to Instagram. Uh, it's funny, Daniel forced me to make an Instagram back when I was working at Danielle back in the early aughts. He said, you what have to be on social then? media. I didn't have anything. Oh, you didn't? You weren't <laughs> doing much social. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, but uh, uh, I chose the same as my uh, Gmail. So R-A-J-V like Victor, I-N-E. Raj Vine. Raj Vine. Daniel is his name, Daniel Jonas, right. J-O-H-N-N-E-S. And then you can also follow us at uh, all of the brands that we mentioned, right. Pressoir, La Palais, La Table, and La Fette. La Fette's, uh, handle is La Fette NYC, even though we sometimes do La Fette outside. But like you said, even if you go to Google and like, what's that thing called? The La... La du Champagne, you know, they, they'll yeah. forget, yeah, it'll exactly. come up, you You'll know, or La Pauli spelled like Pauli Walnut, <laughs> you know, it'll come up, you know, they'll find it. Um, so that's where you should go. You should check that stuff. Uh, 
regularly to keep up on the events and certainly to see what Presswar is doing. Um, I want to thank my guests, Raj Vadia and Daniel Jonas. Daniel had a run out for joining us on The Grape Nation. As always, thanks to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.